1: Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by a hirsute historian, a celebrity historian, well, no, Greg Jenner. A historian of celebrity.
0: Let's, let's be very careful. <laughs>
1: well, I, I said that deliberately, provocatively, <laughs> to, to, to make you correct me. <laughs> but I, I would say, Greg, that you almost are a celebrity no, historian.
0: I do not meet my own criteria, and I'm very, <laughs> very careful about that. I do not Go on want...
1: then, talk us through the criteria.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Um, I have a checklist. Uh, of what a celebrity is. And there are five things on the checklist and I do not meet them. So uh, I'm very important that I make sure of that. Yeah, I mean, celebrity is a very complicated thing. And um, I wrote a book about its history going back to the 1700s up until the 1950s. Because every time I talk to people about celebrity, they'll be like, oh, it's modern, isn't it? It's just, uh, you know, famous for being famous, people with no talent. Uh, what a ru- it's a ruination of, of old school, traditional sort of people being good at things. And I would look at them and go, no, that's not at all how it works. Celebrity is all." always been many different things. So um, yeah, celebrity has five points in my checklist and um, I won't bore you with all of them. But the one that's quite interesting, I think, is that for me, celebrity is it's a type of, um, of economic parasitic capitalism where you're famous, but the fame generates cash and money beyond your control. And I think a lot of people assume celebrities are really rich and live amazing, lavish lifestyles. But actually, it's quite a precarious life being famous. I would hate to be famous. And um, and the millionaires are, you know, they, they have a lot of money. They've got nice houses, but actually they are earning hundreds of millions, if not billions for the corporations and the media conglomerates and the, the big infrastructure that, that supports and generates what celebrity is for. Um, but, yeah, celebrity dates back to the 1700s. So the book is a, is a funny, surprising history of those 250 years. And how it arrived and why it arrived and why we give a damn and why we pretend not to give a damn. Because I meet so many people like, oh, yeah, I don't like celebrity culture at all. It's awful. And then I ask them, you know, three basic questions and they're like, oh, yeah, I do care about it, don't I? I just I pretend not to because it's one of those things you can't not have an opinion on. Even if you hate celebs, you still have to have an opinion.
1: Absolutely. So what, what made you what made you write this book?
0: Well, I'm a public historian, which is a, f- a phrase that people kind of go, well, what does that mean? And I'm, I'm not entirely sure myself, but the gist of it is that my kind of career motto is how do I get people to care about history? How do I get them to enjoy it, to ex- find it accessible, to engage with it? Because for so many people, it was boring and difficult at school. Irrelevant, you're like, know, you're 14, you're like, I don't care. Um, and so the task is often, well, how do I get people to open up and be willing to try and so I look for subjects that are accessible. So my first book was about the history of daily life, um, which everyone can experience. We all go to the toilet. We all eat breakfast. Um, and so my second book, I thought, well, what's a thing that's a bit different and would be really surprising to people, but at the same time feels really accessible and will, um, will allow people the opportunity to kind of go, oh, OK, I'm, I'm learning about history, but I'm not learning too much about history. So Celebrity felt like the perfect subject. Uh, and I thought it would be a really easy book to write. And it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) Four years. It was as hard as a PhD, longer than a PhD. Um, I had 1.4 million words of notes. Um, It's just
1: an agonizing goodness! Because
0: it's an incredibly fascinating subject. It's huge. And it goes way back, goes way back to the 1700s. Um, and prior to celebrity, there was fame, which is a classical Roman and Greek idea, which is different. Um, so I had to explain that and the differences between fame and celebrity. So, um, so yes, the idea was to try and write a book that was easy, so that people would go, "Oh, I like history now." And actually, I ended up writing a book that was very hard, but hopefully the same
1: outcome. Amazing. I, I, I'm intrigued because your your style sort of, you as you describe yourself as a public historian, you sort of straddle academia and and uh, accessibility. So and then must be a real difference between writing a sort of academic book investigating celebrity and a book that is about celebrity, but historically for people who aren't academics. Uh, Do you find that quite a sort of difficult line to straddle?
0: I find it really easy. And I know that's probably something I shouldn't admit. I should probably say it's really hard. I suffer for my art. But uh, the truth is, is that I've always been like this. I've always been an absolute bellend who will always <laughs> be making stupid jokes when people are trying to say important things. But at the same time, I really think it I honestly think it's the most interesting and enjoyable and most uh, useful a pragmatic way yeah. to get people yeah. to like a subject. Like To make something enjoyable doesn't make it any less interesting or important. You're just making it something that people can switch on with and go oh okay yeah great we're doing this now so yeah yeah uh, are you
1: still expecting your your book to be referenced in academic papers and such like yeah
0: and it has been which is really nice and the, the lovely thing about it is that it has been really well received by the scholars and experts and and that's to a certain extent like you get a little tingle, tick. Like, oh, big tick. Yes, yeah. You know, it's like it's like when you know, it's like when your headmaster sort of pats you on the head and goes, "Well done." You're like, "Yes, thank you." <laughs> um, but the truth is, is that you know, I do it. I write stuff like this because I want it to to engage people who've never read a history book in their life. That's who I made mm, mm, So it's mm. nice when, yeah, the PhDs and professors sort of go, oh, this is genuinely good. Well done. That's great. But what really matters is when I go on Amazon and look at the reader reviews or go on Goodreads or go on, you know, the Waterstones website, and what you're looking for is people going, I've never read a history book before, but this one's really fun. You sort of then go, yeah, actually, that's that was the whole ambition, and I'm really, really delighted it's sort of working for most people. Not everyone's going to like my style, but... Um, I am, as I say, a bell end, but um, I try really hard to make sure that big, complicated, important ideas are not dumbed down. They're just presented with humor and jokes or just a conversational style. So it doesn't mm-hmm. feel dry. It just feels like, you know, hopefully these are ideas that you're going to get in, you're going to enjoy these, but I'm going to give them to you in a way that makes sense. Um, with the way that you see the world and um and yeah that's a it's a style that comes naturally to me in fact i now find writing academic style much harder because my instinct is just to be throwing in jokes about lady gaga and stuff like that and they're like what are you doing
1: <laughs> so... before we um before we jump into other subjects yeah. which I, I mean i've got so much to, want to talk to you about um where can people buy your book
0: Oh, anywhere. I mean, the, all, all the good bookshops and all the evil ones, too. Um, I mean, it's currently 99p on Kindle, an ebook book uh, in the UK and in the USA for the rest of February. Um, but other than that, it's on hardback and audiobook. And then it comes out in paperback in, I think, August. So, yeah, just anywhere. It's called Dead Famous. Um, and yes, it's, you know, it's meant to be sort of lively and surprising and a bit of fun, hopefully.
1: Lovely stuff. Um, so you said you'd hate to be famous... And 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 straight away that made me think. I mean, you do already have a degree of fame. You have a, a very large Twitter following. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, as, as someone who has a sort of significant Twitter following myself, I find I find that can, can be quite troubling. Uh, yours is larger than mine. You have a much wider reach than me. Uh, you have a whole variety of different people who follow you, and not just Spurs fans. Uh, what's it like being Greg Jenner on Twitter? (laughs) Oh,
0: God. Uh, Well, as soon as I say anything, I'm going to be cancelled tomorrow. Like, I'll I'll say, it's great, it's lovely, and then there'll be newspaper headlines. BBC historian is is a racist. (laughs) Um, So um, the truth is... I love Twitter, but genuinely love it in an unironic, obsessive, addicted way. Always have done. Been on there a decade. Um, I'm a total chatterbox. I love talking to people. I love listening to people. I follow 10,000 people on Twitter. Wow. So I've, it's not just that I've got a, a sort of a nice following. I've got, I, I follow an enormous number of people, which means I get a really interesting mix of stuff. Loads and loads of scholarship and historians, but also, you know, writers and, and political thinkers and politicians and people writing about, you know, Black Lives Matter and social justice. And all sorts of really important stuff, but also, you know, conservative thinkers and, and highbrow thinkers, so that you're getting a good blend. Um, and then all the comedy writers and all the silly people and the people doing memes. And it really, really makes me a better person, which I know is a weird answer because Twitter is usually such a combative place, but I'm not a combative person. I am a coward. I'm a fence sitter. I hate (laughs) confrontation. I will back away from it like a sort of squirrel fleeing a Rottweiler. Um, So I guess I find Twitter a really, a really rewarding place because it's a place where I can ask questions and people, maybe because they know me and they follow me long enough, know that I'm not being a dick about it. I'm genuinely, if I'm asking a question, it's because I want to know something. And so people tend to reply really quite nicely and kindly. And there's a sort of amazing generosity. So I've never really had problems with Twitter, which is a weird thing, because so many people, you know, yourself included, I know you get a lot of of, of stick and, and some of that's because you venture into the kind of debates that I don't necessarily venture into. Maybe I'm a bit more cautious and cowardly, but also I think football is such a divisive subject that if you take a position, then there's gonna someone's gonna shoot at you, I guess, is the <laughs> is the rule. I mean, how do you find it? Do you find Twitter depressing or is it sort of net positive in the main?
1: Mm, Good question. I think uh, until probably about two years ago, I would have answered very similarly to you. I found it genuinely joyful and energizing and informative and I I built bonds with people and friendships and I loved it I really loved it and then slowly over time I've just found um, my my faith in, in Twitter and social media has just been eroded away by I mean, I use the word faith. People, people who who like to have bad faith conversations. They don't. People don't always want to have a conversation for the right reasons. Now they want to point score. They want to make someone look silly. Um. And I, and I, yeah, I, I struggle at times now. And I'm, I'm definitely finding myself sort of using it less. No, that's not true. I don't necessarily use it less. I use it differently. I I now have. I, I've always had lists, but I use lists a lot. So I get all my politics, all my news from Twitter lists and. I mainly just scroll through those, and and I don't tweet so much anymore. Um, I'm I'm trying to sort of cut back on the amount of tweet, and certainly on the amount of controversial things I tweet about. (laughs) Uh, Tweeting about Jose Mourinho is just um, a nightmare, basically. So, so if you're going to do it, you have to really pick your pick your moments and, and pick the way you phrase it See, yeah what, it's um that's what it's really interesting. fascinates me because as a
0: historian of celebrity what's happening there is you are entering into an area of, of fan studies so you're when you tweet about jose Mourinho, ostensibly you're tweeting about the manager of your football club but because mm-hmm. of the the integrity of his career the sort of the the breadth of it the reputation the way he changed the game the number of clubs he's managed at all of them elite clubs he has assembled a kind of fascinating parallel fandom that moves between clubs. So that Mm -hmm. Jose Mourinho is just his own little kind of celebrity satellite. And that's a really interesting thing. You don't usually get that very often in football in sports I mean you, I guess you get it maybe with like quarterbacks in the States and you get it you know the sort of the Tom Brady's or whatever um, and it happens a bit in Formula One where if a major driver changes team you sort of stick with the driver rather than the team but what's interesting about Jose is that he's you know I wouldn't say it's a cult but I would say there is a, a fandom which is associated with his genius and so if you are if you're saying things about Jose instead of saying like you know he's lost it he's no longer you know relevant in the modern game or whatever some bold statement there are Chelsea fans <laughs> who ordinarily would probably have, you know, stayed out of it, Who'd, who leaped to his defense. And it's like, oh, well, hello, what are you doing here? <laughs> so that's a really interesting thing that as a, a celebrity sort of studier, I look at that and go, right, that's not normal. For the sport that we love, so that's that's where twenty uh, first century celebrity politics has infused a new type of battleground into the thing that we care about.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've come across the Mourinho. I mean, I will call them cultists because I think they are cultists. <laughs> I've, I've, I've come across I've come across the Mourinho cult many times. Um, I've now successfully blocked the majority of them, but essentially. It's it's really strange because essentially they don't like you having any opinions that um, could in any way be construed as negative, even if you're sort of not necessarily coming down hard on one side of offense fence. If you're just sort of offering, you're questioning, gently questioning something that Mourinho's done. They don't like it. They're very, very defensive of him from the start. Um, and don't get me wrong, this isn't all Mourinho fans. Some Mourinho fans are completely reasonable and, and sort of see him as a, a rounded person, as we all are. Um, but many sort of see him as Jose Mourinho, the winner, the achiever, the man who's done, who's done all these things, and that's it. There's no other There's no other part of his, there's no other aspect of his personality. It's very peculiar. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've successfully blocked the majority of these people now, so I don't have to interact with them regularly. I, I can hopefully just have more normal conversations about him in future um and um, yeah i was just gonna say you i mean you have been on this podcast before and yeah. we've had a, a a nice conversation about history previously uh a lot has changed since then an awful <laughs> lot has changed since then it must have been about 18 months ago yeah what? But s- since then you've 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 written a book you've had a baby and there's been a global pandemic <laughs> are those things linked did i cause them uh, i mean Who maybe <laughs> you tell me <laughs> yeah
0: it it's bizarre, isn't it? Because it's not so long ago we we talked in terms of like normal human times, yeah. but in pandemic yeah. times, it's about three decades ago that we spoke because it just feels like this lockdown is eternal and that every day has its own, I don't know, it just feels like it's a, a kind of a week is like a calendar month. It's just mm. really, really long. So I guess... Last time we spoke, uh, Maurizio Pochettino was our beloved leader. Spurs were uh, not great, but we still were kind of clinging to the, well, Poch will sort it, don't worry. Uh, and, and yeah, that I, I was full of joy because I had a young baby and I was sort of just about finishing a book and I think everything was sort of all right And I had a brand new podcast that was just about to launch and was doing quite well. And now it feels like the world's just caught fire and everything's gone wrong. And we're now a year and a half into Jose's tenure, I guess. So it's really different. How have you... Felt it this past year and a half, like in which you know. I'm interested to know to what extent Spurs and COVID have coalesced into a singular experience for you, or whether you've managed to keep them partitioned. Because I think Mm. I haven't been able to partition them. They feel to me like they're they're one and the same.
1: Yes, I've gone over this a few times in my head, and I've I've spoken about my sort of disenfranchisement. It feels like too strong a word, but it's, it's the only one coming to my mind right now. I've I've certainly felt over the last year to 18 months, as though Spurs is slipping away from me a little bit. And Mm -hmm. that's not to say that I don't love them. Of course I love them and I pour all my time into supporting (laughs) them and podcasting about them and writing about them. Um, But I I feel differently about them. And I I don't know if that's purely pandemic. I think it's partly stadium. I think it's partly, you know, not having my beautiful White Hart Lane, um, which all my memories were sort of encapsulated within. Um, I think the pandemic has a lot to do with it. It's, It's really changed... Our relationship with football at least temporarily and I was saying to, to some friends this week that there's just too much on television now we're, we're sort of mm. I'm getting I'm getting fed up with it all I'm getting just sick of football a little bit but obviously Mourinho has an impact as well uh, he's, he's not my cup of tea I've not been I've not been coy about saying that I'm not enjoying the style of football and so that's disenfranchised me slightly as well uh, and then I guess the sort of monotony as you described of the pandemic the fact that the days sort of bleed into one another. I mean, for me, I'm working from home. I, I've got quite an intense job. It quite often bleeds into the evenings. So I don't really often feel like I'm getting much downtime. The downtime I do get is often podcasting or watching Spurs. Um, so football in some ways then sort of feels, it can feel like a chore. If, if it's not feeling, like if you're not really enjoying watching Spurs in your downtime, which is precious, It can it can feel quite a, a chore. Um, so yes, it's it's definitely impacted. Um, the pandemic has definitely impacted on my relationship with football. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and podcasting during a pandemic as well has been has been different. Even if we wanted to meet up, the opportunity is not there. So yeah. you're you're doing this. I mean, we're, we're looking at each other right now, but it's not <laughs> the same as being in a room to, together, is it? You don't get the same. You don't get the, well, I, I read some, some academic study that said that essentially we're, we're, we're more tired at the end of the day because of mm-hmm. these online meetings. We're not getting the body language, we're not getting the sort of the cues that you would get from being in a room with someone. And therefore it is more tiring because you're, you're using your eyes in that way and your brain is process, processing things differently. Um, and it, it all has a big effect. How, how have you found podcasting in the pandemic?
0: It is a, a really interesting challenge in, in a couple of obvious ways in, in terms of the, the technology, the Wi-Fi, the stability of, of the kind of you want. You yeah. know, I do I do two shows for the BBC. I also made a series for Audible as well, which hasn't come out yet. So I've made three podcasts in lockdown. So I've basically so far 51 episodes in the past 12 months. So it's been wow, pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty intense. All of them, of course, you have to script in advance. So um, it's been pretty full on. Um, but. In some ways, it's really amazing to just sort of shuffle into the garden, into my little office in the garden, sit down on the chair, plug in my microphone, and start waffling. Like that's—I used to have to go to London, which you know I live in Surrey, so it was always an hour and a half to go and record anything. So that's quite nice. But they do run longer. And mm. what's what's interesting about them? Uh, I work on comedy shows, and with comedy, it's so much about timing and and those kind of little verbal and. Sort of hidden cues where you send a message to someone else, going, "Do a gag now," and I need, I need this to sort of be lifted, or you're setting some up with a punchline. You're kind of offering it to them. It's actually quite hard to do it on Zoom because the camera mm-hmm. doesn't quite mm-hmm. detect it because everyone's slightly looking off camera because they're looking at mm-hmm. their own screen, and so ever so slightly. It just alters the rhythm a little bit of podcasting, which I guess in some ways is similar to no fans in the stadium offering changing the rhythm of football, like the the sort of ridiculous lack of defending we've seen from not just Spurs this year, but the number of games with insanely high scores sort of feels like everyone is slightly off their usual kind of you yeah, know, the timings are off. Um, and so it just feels like the whole world is a little bit uh, sort of stop, start. And we're not quite sure. Oh, you oh, you, sorry, no, oh you, you go. Yeah, it's like that. It's a lot of that. And so we've got better at it. You know, the podcasts have worked really well. We're getting better at them. We do a lot with American scholars um, because we can. You're like, OK, if they don't have me mm-hmm. in the studio, we'll just book loads of American historians and American comedians and stuff like that um, because you wouldn't get the opportunity otherwise. And when we exit lockdown, we'll we'll go back to, you know, using people in the studio. So it's been Good in a lot of ways, but it has changed the nature of what I do, which is that up-close intimacy where you can read someone's expressions so closely and see if you're losing them. You know, if you're boring your comedian and they're sort of starting to just sort of, you know, (laughs) see the eyes rolling back of the head. In a room, you can can see that coming and go, okay, Uh, reach for a joke, reach a, you know, change of pace, uh, do something a bit different. On Zoom, you just suddenly notice that the recording has run way longer than you thought it had done. And last week we did a podcast that was two hours, 40 minutes long. And it's like this is for a 50-minute edit show. It's like well, okay, two hours is going in the bin. But we just couldn't quite get everything into the sentences we wanted to say. And we just, we were just kind of waffling and taught. And it was fine. I enjoyed it. It was good. But there was a sort of a lack of, I don't know, like mm, it just mm. felt like we weren't censoring ourselves or we weren't stopping ourselves, which we would normally do in person. um
1: But it's that you know. must be exhausting. That must be completely exhausting. And, and the thing is, with your podcast, because you've researched it in detail beforehand as well, you've prepped it. Uh, and, and, and probably you therefore feel quite protective of the content plus you're the host and and, and dare i say hosting is really quite difficult um <laughs> nah it's easy uh, um, yeah <laughs> the, the the thing is with, with with your podcast it's so detailed there's so much to cover you have particular points you have to hit mm. i mean it's easy for me because ours is so freeform we have a running order uh but if we go off off piece it doesn't matter you've actually got notes you need to hit you've got you've got like the bbc behind it so you, you you have to sort of deliver uh ours is we we can put out whatever we like and it's fine i mean that must be really tiring
0: i don't find it tiring but i do stress about it a lot. So today, for example, has been a really stressful day because things have been going really wrong and all our plans have sort of gone, but they haven't worked and we're having to sort of change gear. Um, But yeah, the, the reason You're Dead to Me works as a comedy show that teaches you some stuff is that we do an enormous amount of work in advance that you don't really hear um, because it's, you know, it's a bit like that kind of the metaphor of the swan gliding along mm-hmm. the, the surface, but beneath the water, the legs are sort of furiously peddling. Um, You know, so we have a team. We've got my, my um, colleague, Emma, writes most of the script. I do 25% of it probably, uh, but she does most of it. But we have a team of PhD students who do a huge amount of research. Um, we've got an upcoming episode where we've got 21,000 words of notes that have been compiled by five of us. So four PhD students and me. Um, And that's to produce... 45 minutes of radio um, but we have just we just knew it's a really big subject and we wanted to do it well so we just sat down and went right we'll read every book and we'll throw it all in the mix and then we will sift through it finding the best bits and we'll zero in on it and by the time we get a comedian in the room and a historian it's going to turn into a really great conversation but the skill I suppose that I'm still trying to learn and it's it's kind of you to say that hosting is difficult because then I get to go yeah it is, it is it's really hard the most difficult thing I suppose is that I have everything in my head mm-hmm. but every Everything is boring to a listener they don't want to hear everything um so you have to be really selective in not throwing just enormous amount of stuff at people because you've worked so hard learning it you know? yeah, yeah, yeah so i spend all morning learning the script learning the facts you know yeah a huge amount of historical stuff goes into my head and then i have to put this sort of gate down that goes no that's not coming out of your head what's coming out is the funny stuff the bum jokes the rude bits um the important things that really matter what's the comedian really going to enjoy you know what you know which bit of this is is going to have a kind of a take-home fact where someone's gonna be like oh my god i never knew that and they're going to want to share it with a friend that's the challenge for me i guess is the sort of filtering and censoring Mm -hmm. of myself Mm -hmm. because my natural instinct as a historian is to just keep talking (laughs) and just sort of go well it's actually a lot more subtle and complicated than that and here's all the other things but that doesn't make good radio so i'm My hope, and you know, if people listen to the show, they can tell me if I'm failing or not. But my hope is that You're Dead to Me sounds off the cuff, um, because the comedian is completely unscripted. They have no idea what we're talking about. They literally are just a funny person who reacts to what they hear. The historian knows what's coming. And then I'm a bit of both. I'm there to try and change gear, make it funny, make it light, keep it going. And just inject moments of like, okay, we're doing this now. Um, but if it goes well, sometimes the comedian and the historian just take over the show, and I'm not really needed. So, I mean, we had one recently about Grania O'Malley, who's 16th century Irish pirate queen, uh, and the comedian Catherine and the historian Gillian. Uh, the two of them, both Irish, both really funny. About two minutes in, just stole the podcast off me. They just absolutely ganged up. Uh, and and took it off me. And it was just hilariously funny because I, you know, I, I couldn't wrestle it back. And, uh, and every time I tried, it got funnier and funnier. And so there just became this point where it's like, OK, I, I surrender to this sort of piracy that's happening uh, with my podcast. And it made for great podcasting because everyone sort of got to hear me squirming and going, oh, no, please, uh, we need to do this. Um, but that's fun. And that's that's nice. But um, but the art of podcasting, I guess, is to kind of give that intimacy and that warmth and that kind of like chatting with your mates. But with my job, obviously, because it's, it's factual, I've got to try and get that. And I've got to try and crowbar in this enormous amount of scholarship that we've been doing in the background without you noticing. So that is the thing I'm still trying to figure out. I hope I'm getting better at it. But um, yeah. Hard.
1: no I, th- I i really think you are achieving what you set out to do and, and i massively sort of appreciate what you're saying there about sort of a comedian who's off script um and, and, do, <laughs> and saying what they want to say and comedians will be comedians i'm sure yeah uh, essentially you'll happen to editorialize on the fly uh which is really it's a really difficult skill it's it's not easy at all and i i do think you absolutely sound unscripted so uh, you you're 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 ticking a big box there The intimacy that you mentioned—that's one thing I've noticed um, during the pandemic. We've had lots of sort of emails, messages of people saying how much they appreciate the podcast, how much it's helped them during mm-hmm. this period, and it's funny because. Our listenership has dropped considerably uh, during the pandemic. And yeah. I think that's simply because people aren't commuting, and that's that was one of the main ways that they listen to their podcasts. I mean I know personally that i've my podcast listening has diminished hugely since I've stopped commuting to work. Yep. Uh, I do still listen, but far less frequently than I once did uh, i I managed to cram in far fewer hours um, and, and that's, we've we've noticed that in our listenership, uh, but the people who do listen seem even more engaged than ever. Um, and, and just appreciate. Sort of the, I think part of the routine, the fact that we we always tend to release on a Monday night, Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. so that they they've got something there and then, and and they, it's kind of it's like oh yeah, it's Tuesday, you know, <laughs> a reminder of what the day actually is because it's very easy to forget. Yeah. Um, but also the sort of the friendship, the camaraderie, the sort of um, the intimacy, as you mentioned, because we're not seeing people, we're not seeing our families, we're not seeing friends. You know, we haven't seen friends for a year now. I've not seen my sister for a year, which is just madness. Uh, but wow. we are getting we are getting our friends on podcasts through our ears I mean so Adam Buxton for me is like he's 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 my mate he yeah and 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 I find it so comforting to listen to I've mentioned it many times but there's an album I've listened to every day since it came out the Fleet Foxes album sure I've listened to it literally every day since it came out which was in what September Uh, because I find it very comforting very reassuring (laughs) and I think people need that at the moment
0: I don't, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you've just said. I mean, uh, yeah, m- I'm a massive podcast obsessive, um, but yeah, I haven't been commuting and uh, it started to drop. Also, I just found myself just zeroing in on like news and politics, just listening to endless hours of like American Same. political uh, analysis in the sort of Trump era as he got increasingly more dangerous. Um, So like sort of nice, funny, cheerful, jolly shows. I was like, I don't have time for you. I need these serious hard hitting shows about <laughs> the collapse in democracy, you know, sort of democracy face- uh, but but what's interesting, I guess, is that to a certain extent, what you're describing there—you know, you use the word intimacy, friendship—there's a thing called parasocial intimacy which is a a, a sort of one of the core psychological imbalances in in celebrity studies in in terms of what you know the relationship between a fan and a celebrity is and it's where one person cares deeply and knows a huge amount about the famous person but the famous person doesn't know anything about the fan and that produces this odd effect where you might bump into someone famous in a shop and go oh my god i love you and they're like who are you (laughs) please step away (laughs) um but what's lovely about podcasting is that i think it's moving a bit beyond that into there's a sort of reciprocity you know i'm I'm noticing it with your ex-subs obviously with people sending in questions and and thoughts and chatting back and you're starting to get to know your listeners a little bit and they obviously know you pretty well and ditto with adam buxton you know when he had that terrible thing and his mum died Mm. and like Mm. it's felt like I was in the room and I just felt very sad on behalf of him and really touched and a little bit teary listening to him and his mate Adam and it just sort of I, I suddenly kind of went I, okay I I'm invested in this stranger's life um because he's not a stranger he's Adam Buxton the great heroic Adam Buxton who we all love um and uh, that's a fascinating thing because I don't usually have those sorts of feelings of parasocial intimacy I really like some some people from you know different walks of, of life and and whatever and you know I, uh, I once um i work on a comedy show for kids called horrible histories and a few years back uh, we did a charity um sketch for sport relief uh, at spurs lodge with jermaine defoe and i got to be in a sketch with jermaine defoe where we were tudor footballers and we were trying to challenge him to a game of football but our rules of course are insanely violent because we carry knives and <laughs> the rules of the game are very different and and i just stood there going this is jermaine defoe. Oh. I hope he notices me. <laughs> it just I felt really I felt like a child and um it was just very very strange to sort of stand next to someone really famous um who I cared about enormously and still do because he's uh, he's a good bloke um but there is yeah i think with podcasting there is this really intense sort of reliance and warmth where we we kind of need these shows as our crutch a little bit and and we've had amazing feedback on your dead to me and my my children's podcast homeschool history where people are writing in particularly children are writing in and sending us letters and they've done drawings and they've built a colosseum to look like ancient rome and and they're dressing up as you know as romans and whatever um and it's so lovely and so Beautiful when all the hard work means something to people. It's not just a distraction. It's not just a bit of content past the evening. It really is helping a bit. You know, it, you can go too far. Obviously, you can you can start to kind of go. I'm you know, it's, my people need me. I'm not saying that, but it's it's a question of just like if you do something and it touches someone and they get in touch, it makes my day and it's lovely when i get those emails and i get probably 30 or 40 of them a week and it's it's really nice to just know that what we're doing isn't just filler um it's it's helping People are learning. They're enjoying. They're passing the time. They're dealing with the, the horrors and the hardships of, of lockdown by looking for any sort of little chink of light they can, they can, and they're sort of trying to climb towards it. And podcasting is part of that. And I feel very privileged and very very lucky to be allowed to do that
1: on the BBC. I've just sort of realised that we're we're two podcasters talking about how amazing podcasting is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, let's... I, I suddenly feel very self-conscious. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> let's talk about Mourinho's Tottenham. Oh God. Uh, as, as a distraction. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I actually know your 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 feelings on on Jose Mourinho because you're so you're so. You're so sort of even-handed on Twitter uh, in, in your dealing with Spurs, and you sort of always manage to sort of try and take a, a cheerful, positive approach. I mean, quite often you'll tweet me after a game, and like even the, the most recent match, you you were saying how much you really enjoyed it, and I was just like, oh, you're so uplifting. You, 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 you <laughs> we sort of seem to have a sort of nice, positive sheen on things. But how how are you feeling about Mourinho, Tottenham? Are you sort of... is it... Has it had a similar effect on you as it has on me that you sort of feel turned off?
0: I didn't want him in the job. Uh, I'm not a fan of him as a person and I didn't think he was the right uh, hire. I understood the logic of the you hire the big trophy winner to get yourself a trophy because uh, to a certain extent Spurs have become not just sort of punchlines but like it's now absurd how long it is since we've won anything. You know, 2008 is the last thing we won and let's be honest the League Cup I mean, who really cares? I mean, it's a trophy (laughs) of course we care but like who really cares about the League Cup? Doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things but to us it's like the last little bit of Of glory we've got to enjoy apart from that Champions League final where we lost it about two minutes in with a sort of an arm in the air that wasn't really meant to be there but wasn't a handball and we all went oh come on and and then doom so Jose for me was not the right man but I got on board once there was a sort of a plan in place we were going to play counter-attacking football we were going to be pretty pragmatic a little bit boring um but we were going to win games by you know um exploiting the genius we have up front which is Harry Kane and 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 Son. So um And then things went weird, and we were like genuinely fun for a bit. And we were scoring for fun against like Southampton and United. And you're like, okay, well, okay, great. This is good. Yeah, top of the league. Love it. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Hooray. And then things went really weird in a different direction because then we became diabolically bad and boring which is a weird, you know, I'm fine with being diabolically bad and fun because, you know, the 90s Spurs was, you know, the <laughs> kind of pescue, uh years, Darren Anderton and all that. I, you know, I enjoyed those years of losing games 5-3 because you're like, all right, well, you know, I saw some goals. But we were now losing games... And drawing games against really not good teams. We were throwing things away. We were parking the bus at 35 minutes in. Um, You know, the Palace game really pissed me off. Um, And I just couldn't get my head around it because it didn't, it wasn't pragmatism anymore. Pragmatism is a philosophy of like, this works, we'll do that. And I get Mm -hmm. that. It's not fun. And Spurs have a certain way of playing, which, you know, is about flair and attacking and courage. And we love that. But pragmatism works. But our pragmatism wasn't pragmatic. It was unpragmatic. We were losing games by being uh, conservative. And so there was a sort of false logic to it. And I didn't understand what was happening. And it, it sort of persisted too long. And I got a bit pissed off. About three, four weeks ago, I just went, what? What is happening? We are so bad. Um. And so boring. And then I guess something changed again. And now we're seeing us turning into a kind of slightly more reckless, free-flowing, weird football team again and we're losing games 5-4 and you're like okay all right and we're winning games 4-1 but defending like clowns (laughs) i don't know i mean it just feels like it feels like we're going through an identity crisis where we're trying on different hats and each hat is more ridiculous than the last hat but eventually we'll hopefully find a hat that suits us but right now if you ask me my feelings on jose i'm going to tell you that i really i don't think he's the right boss for us but I also don't think you can fire him I don't think that's going to help um because who takes over I mean it, I mean no one at the club is going to take over you end up with a Tim Sherwood scenario um and Nagelsmann is probably not going to want to come so all right do you go to Allegri eh, you know he's a good manager is he is he the one we want I don't know is he I'm not sure so I'm I'm waiting for Jose to sort it out And I'm hopeful he will sort it out, we'll win a trophy, he'll get to do his little bus parade and say he's a serial winner, and we can all go, thanks very much, but we need to build something new. Pochettino built something, it so nearly worked, he ran the players into the ground, we didn't sign enough signings, we relied on Sissoko and Lucas, which is a sort of mad plan, Uh, and now here we are with a sort of weird team of genius
1: players and not good enough players. It sounds like um, you're thinking along the same lines as me that you you want to have a vision of what we are trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, and, and without that vision, it's really difficult to sort of... It's really difficult to sort of accept what we're seeing on the pitch because it's, like you say, it's boring and we're losing. So if there's no vision, (laughs) then what's the point? Um, But yeah, like you, I think we just sort of have to hope for the best for the rest of the season and hope things do improve. Hope sort of taking the handbrake off and being prepared to lose 5-4 will will hopefully culminate in some decent results and we can win a trophy. That's the the best case scenario at this point. Um, Yeah, although I mean,
0: the City fight. I mean, when we got City in the final initially, I was like, City are having a quite a bad year and then they've just turned into like this imperious Rolls Royce and it's like oh okay
1: literally since we beat them since since we beat them we've become terrible and they've become incredible yeah like like, couldn't be more divergent now it's like I mean
0: it's like we caught their disease off them and (laughs) yeah we need to get onto Arsenal um but it's But I I think in terms of the Europa League, that feels like the place that we're now looking for our glory. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same, but it feels to Mm -hmm. me that the league this year, we are racing for fourth place. But let's be honest, that's going to be a tough ask because we've got some really good teams this year. And uh, I think the FA Cup, well, that didn't go well. Uh, League Cup, are we going to beat City? I'd love to, but they are so good.
1: Uh, Europa League feels like the one. So I guess Jose's done it before, maybe. Mm, all the eggs in the Europa basket. I mean, I'm not <laughs> against that strategy, to be honest. I, 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 I think I think it would be quite controversial for him to prioritise the Europa League and potentially sort of rest players in the Premier mm. League. But I can see the logic for sure in, in doing so, particularly as it would guarantee his Champions League qualification, which I do think is kind of my god it's i don't want to say it out loud cuz i hate saying it out loud but it's really important in terms of keeping harry kane at the club
0: it's it's more than that i mean so you can you can divide football into lots of different subcategories of of why we care and what it's for and fundamentally it's a thing that distracts us from the misery of life it's you know it's it's, it's a sort of existential salve that allows us to care about something else other than dying but the truth <laughs> is, is that to be a Spurs fan is to be raised with a certain uh, disappointment and pessimism. We know this. It's it's sort of hardwired into our DNA. Um but also, you know, we are trying to figure out what do we want this club to be? And I think Europa League glory would be a European trophy, which would mean so much, which would pragmatically get us into the competition we want to be in. But the Europa League, you know, it's got prestige. If you can win yeah, it, yeah, for sure. it, it matters. It really does. The League Cup, I don't think, has prestige. It's just a trophy that you can just, you know, you can cling to and go, we won something. But the Europa League has a genuine sort of sheen of excellence. And if you win it, fantastic. You're into next year's Champions League. But pragmatically, you've got to be in the Champions League for the money. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a money game. And mm-hmm. we've had a massive winful hit. Because the stadium was built exclusively to fill it, sixty thousand people every week. Well, that's not happened at all. So we've got our eight hundred million pound stadium that's been gathering dust, and then we're going to lose star players because we'll maybe not be in the Champions League, and they're going to want, they want to play in the best league, and then you get that cycle of being mediocre where you can't sign the top players. So then you have to resort to signing, you know, talented Frenchmen or people out of the Dutch leagues, or you're hoping that the the wonder kids come through from the under-23s. And, and you're, sort of in, you're sort of in the Everton sort of phase of just endlessly going, maybe this is our year, and it never is. So we have to stay in the Champions League. You've just got to cling to it. We've just got to find a way to get up there. And so Jose, you hope, can do that, because that's his... His shtick, but if he can't pull it off, I, I can see us getting
1: caught in quite an awkward situation. So I'm really hopeful it doesn't happen. I mean, I'm, I've been quite positive and bullish on the fact that this won't happen. That we'll even if we don't qualify for the Champions League this season, we'll be fine. I, I mean, I, I really do. I think I do believe that as well. I, think, I don't think I'm just trying to convince myself. And I think it's because we, we've we've built the club to such a status now, to such a stature financially that we can cope. We've got we've got the ability to sort of brush aside a global pandemic where we're not getting sixty thousand people through the doors twice a week, uh we're not having Anthony Joshua fight in the stadium, we're not having the Who play a concert uh <laughs> every summer. You know, it's like I, I do I do think we've got financial resilience because of the stadium um and because of the the, the because of the stinginess essentially of, of, of Enoch over the last ten, fifteen years. Um and I think as long as we keep Kane Touch with as long as we keep Kane, I, I do think we can bounce back and and still be fine and then you know become a regular top four club again.
0: I agree, but I people keep banging on about the Gareth Bale phenomenon. Weirdly enough, my big worry, which I didn't express at the time, because I was trying to be excited about Gareth Bale coming back, because he is you know, we we of course he's one of the greatest players of our generation yeah. who left us at his peak and then peaked even further and won absolutely everything you can win and has returned to us. So that's lovely, that's great, exciting. The thing that I didn't say at the time that I'm now going to say on the podcast is my worry is that he's turned up at Spurs and he is a salutary warning to Harry Kane that hamstrings snap and knees go and world-class doesn't stay world-class if your game is built on speed and I'm worried Kane is looking at him going oh right yeah i need to get out of this club and i need to go and win something because that's gareth bale who's 31 like 31 is no age ordinarily Mm. but gareth bale Mm. cannot run anymore i mean he's still a quality footballer still intelligent and experienced and a beautiful left foot but he can't sprint like he used to i'm wondering if harry kane's looking at him going yeah okay that'll happen to me maybe in three years because my ankles keep going um maybe i need to move to a a super club um Mm. so that's Ironically enough, I wondered if the Gareth Bale signing was strategically wrong, not because he wasn't the right footballer for us, but because he was a metaphor that might oh, Jesus. send the wrong message to the people we're desperately trying to cling to. Now, I'm hopefully, that's me being pessimistic. But yeah, there's a sense that when Bale's sitting on that bench, you know, you kind of look across and go, he was world class. And now Lucas is getting in the team ahead of him.
1: And it's like, oh well, no. I mean, <laughs> hopefully, he's, hopefully he's like telling Harry... Harry, look, it's not worth it. The trophies aren't worth it. The money's not worth it. I was miserable there, miserable maybe, for maybe. three years. They could, they could give me as much golf as I wanted, and I was still miserable. <laughs> so don't leave your don't leave your beloved surroundings. Your you know don't don't leave your family. This is the, this is the thing I cling to of Kane. He's such a family man, and he's he's got so much family settled in the local area. I sort of think you know that <laughs> plus the fact that he's got Jimmy Greaves' goal record in his sights. Maybe that's enough. Yeah, I hope
0: so. I mean, Harry Kane is a phenomenon, as we well know, and it's and part of that phenomenon is his mental strength, that sort of mm-hmm. insane focus and, and just sort of that competitive instinct that doesn't make him a violent player. You know, he doesn't throw punches and lash out and yell, but his there's a sort of an aggression in the way he chases things down, like chases records, chases, you know, uh, he's really, really going to be... I don't know if he he looks back on his career and he hasn't won the thing I'm gonna I'm gonna feel sorry on his behalf yeah yeah same he's so beyond the level that some of the other players of that club are (laughs) it's like come on Harry I need you to win something so I don't feel guilty for cheering you (laughs) on and asking you to stay from my own moral point of view I need to feel like not a bad person for, for demanding you stay at this club for the rest of your career um, but he's a phenomenal footballer and we are privileged to have him in our team. And I'm, I love him so intensely. But part of me is like, OK, if he doesn't win something in the next year or half, two years or something, he's got to go, hasn't he? He's got to go for the sake of his reputation and his legacy. It just it's going to mean something to him. Um, and I don't want him to be bitter about Spurs. I want him to love Spurs and come back fondly. I don't want him to, like, regret it. God, I'm getting. Oh my God, I'm getting so downbeat. Chris, lift me, lift me up. Give me some good news. <laughs> no, I
1: mean, the, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Everything you're saying is completely right. And if you were advising Kane, this is the kind of stuff he'd be saying. I think we just have to hope that he's not like the others. That's, that's all we can cling to. Um, Greg, it's been such a pleasure just having a, a, a catch up and a natter with you. Um, before before I let you go, uh, I, I think we should have a sort of talk about what's coming next for you. I mean, you you've told me off air that you've got a bit of a break coming up and uh, by god you don't have deserve it
0: uh, yeah it's been a, a sort of a relentless sort of 12 months i've written two books during lockdown uh, which is about one hundred and forty thousand words and then <laughs> made 51 podcasts so i'm a bit knackered uh so april is when all my deadlines end and i'm gonna just sort of have a lie down and and read some books for fun and watch some telly and and play with my baby and just sort of you know hug my wife and, and try and be a normal human um and we'll see thereafter but it's you know I'm incredibly lucky to do a job I really love, and when people ask me to do things, it's like oh wow, thank you so much for asking me. I'm so grateful, so I try and say yes to all the good stuff. But yeah, a break would be probably nice.
1: Well, honestly, I wish you all the very best of luck with um, with everything with your books, with your podcast. I, I I do listen to the podcast every now and again. You're dead to me. Uh, I'm not a history buff, and as I said, I've, I've I've scaled down my podcast listening, but I really enjoy it, and I always oh, I always chill. learn something. It's, it the style's lovely. Um, the comedians are always good value but it's you and the historians that that make it worthwhile it's uh it's it's a great it's a great show i strongly recommend it to anyone who's listening
0: thank you and yeah if you've got kids aged about you know six to ten or so homeschool history is the other show i do which is um short they're 12 13 minutes long it's on BBC Sounds and their short funny history lessons for, for young kids so um, yeah both shows are uh, freely available around the world.
1: Wonderful thank you so much for your time it's been a, it's been a genuine pleasure and we'll have to get you back on at some point in the future.
0: <laughs> Hopefully it'll be a lesson I, I feel like I really finished on a slightly downbeat to tone there so let me just say that I I believe that we're going to win a trophy this year come on you spurs. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful
1: we'll leave it there. You've been listening to The Extra Train. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for the production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his soundcloud, e Do check him out, he's great. great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help. ACAST
0: powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jessie Cruikshank I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl.